We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Our biggest takeaways from Wild Card Weekend. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. You can find my Stealing Signals Substack at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his great work at Rotoviz. Sean, it was a very fun Wild Card Weekend. It was a little bit chalky, I would say, in the sense that we got all the favorites winning and then the really popular underdog the the closest line and the team that i think a lot of people were picking was san francisco to win and and advance um i would say from the the different conversations i had that it seemed like that was the one that most people were comfortable most comfortable picking san francisco also winning so you had sort of the chalky upset and then all the chalky favorites um which is just to say that you know when i say chalky the 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 favored team the the teams that the market liked to to advance they all advanced not a lot of particularly entertaining games, you know, quite a few blowouts, but it does set up for some really fun matchups in the divisional round. Uh, I think we do have a pretty good final eight in terms of some of the best teams of this year. And it should be really fun to see sort of how the rest of the playoffs play out as well. It should be, you mentioned the blowouts and the blowouts weren't particularly fun, but they do set up a final eight, as you just mentioned, that looks extremely powerful and uh, I think that we could see the champion really coming from any of these eight teams. I would probably say the Rams are an interesting team with Matthew Stafford having the high highs and the low lows and a playmaking defense. So I, we could get anything from them. These other seven teams look fantastic. It depends on what you think of the Titans, but getting Derrick Henry back, I think, puts them back into the conversation. They obviously had that game early in the season. We're at the midway point of the season where they defeated the Kansas City Chiefs 27-3. to You look at where everybody is right now, I think that victory over the Chiefs is probably the most impressive victory of the season. You, you look at what just happened this last week, and the Bills' loss to the Jaguars early in the season is one of the most mystifying results we'll ever get in the NFL. Then we had a game here where the Bills come out and score seven consecutive touchdowns. If you're a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan like myself, that is absolutely terrifying. The Chiefs got off to a worse start against the Steelers. The Steelers have a defense that can make some plays at times, but then they go on their own run of six consecutive touchdowns. Uh, You and I had kind of referenced this game from way back in the early 2000s 
the Colts and Chiefs mindless heartbreaking game. Are we going to see another game at Arrowhead that has no punts and both teams really being forced to score touchdowns in every possession here? It feels like it. I mean, the last time we saw Buffalo and Kansas City play, Buffalo kind of ran them out of the gym a little bit, and they didn't run a lot of plays, as I recall, because they were so efficient. They they went downfield early and often. They scored a lot of first-half points with some big downfield passing. They were forcing Mahomes to kind of move the ball slowly, and this was right when, you know, all the teams sort of were with Mahomes and, you know, Kansas city had some things to sort out, but the way I recall it was just like long Kansas city drive, quick Buffalo strike, long Kansas city drive, quick Buffalo strike kind of back and forth. And obviously the bills went on and won that game kind of going away. I would expect Kansas city and especially after seeing them this week to be a little bit more productive offensively, I guess, just overall a little bit more prepared uh and and then we'll see defensively certainly they've come a long way as well that was early in in the season in october i think um we'll see if they're able to do a little bit more on the bills but the bills have to be pretty confident obviously with that prior result the i mean and then obviously coming off this patriots game you mentioned at seven straight touchdowns they're the first team in nfl history to play an entire game without a single punt field goal attempt or turnover uh, of any kind every single one of their possessions ended in a touchdown or uh the end of the half or the end of the game so they they did not <laughs> ever fail to, to to find the end zone um which is certainly not great for patriots fans but was pretty fascinating to watch well i was just gonna say this is another game too where similar to last season with tom brady winning the super bowl for another team bill belichick takes a little bit of a hit to his reputation. You have this game here where he's the big defensive guru. This team is built around defense and running the ball. They get shredded. Another little bit of a hit to his reputation. But Ben, this was a fantastic Patriots defense, which in these cases, there's going to be a little bit of criticism, obviously, for the team that failed. But I think that it's even more important to give credit to the team that succeeded, right? I mean, that's the real storyline there. And they were so unbelievably good. And now we have both Kansas City and Buffalo in situations where they have found a running back. They are moving the ball more effectively in that way. And then both teams were able to make their peripheral receivers dominate in the, in the Bills situation, definitely dominate. On the Chiefs, we got just enough from guys like Byron Pringle. Demarcus Robinson, never going to be a big part, but made a key catch in this game. Now defenses have to account for so much and these, you know, this big talking point at midseason of there are some things you can do to slow these teams down. We said they will adjust and they have, and now they look like they can beat defenses even in so many more different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I was also going to say that I, I think, I, I thought it was very interesting. You mentioned the Rams as sort of the one of these eight teams that I don't know that we don't know what we're going to get out of the team for me that stands out. And, and perhaps this is somewhat predictable, but it, it is the 49ers because they were the, the only team to win as an underdog in round one. But, you know, to I, I think a lot of people said, you don't want to face the 49ers. They're dangerous. And they looked great in some respects. They also, it, it was a, a, another popular take to say that neither team wanted to win this game. The, uh, the 49ers and Cowboys 
they we saw some of the things that could limit them creep up, right? We saw a really bad Jimmy Garoppolo interception in in a in a spot where that was like the the only way you're going to let Dallas back in the game. It felt like they were up two scores, and he throws an interception in his own territory and and gives Dallas a short field, and suddenly, um, you know, in, in the fourth quarter, and suddenly Dallas is able to cut it to one score, and and there's still enough time where it's like, well, they're going to get a couple more drives at this. The other thing we saw that I think is a concern if you're a Niners fan was just Kyle Shanahan's conservatism. I mean, there was a punt where they took a delay of game and punted from a fourth and one situation. Uh, I think I saw the edge sports model tweet out that it was a 17% win probability shift. They're just, just their pre-snap decision to punt uh, essentially saying that had they decided to go for it on fourth and one, you know, what their probabilities would have been of converting and then eventually going on to win relative to their decision to punt and what the probabilities were going to be. They're up six points at that point. And to make that decision to take the penalty and then punt was, in my mind, uh, and I'm looking at the game log now, it's 250 left, fourth and one at the 49. They're right at midfield. You're putting away up six points with three minutes left when you have a fourth and one and you're a running team and you've been able to run the ball all game. It just like it still boggles my mind. It's not doesn't take a lot of math to say when you're when you're up six, you can lose by one. If the other team goes down and scores a touchdown, they were going to go for it on the next fourth and one opportunity they got that was a little further into Dallas territory up at the 38 and they had a false start and then chose to punt from the 42. I think I even would have went for fourth and six on that. <laughs> I mean, same, same token, but that was a little bit, that one, that one was with only about 40 seconds left. So maybe a little bit of a different scenario, but at any rate, you're talking about some pretty conservative decisions when they had the chance to, to potentially put the game away and then trusting their defense, ultimately their defense held up, but certainly, they allowed Dallas to win, you know, gave the ball back to them. And, you know, football is a game of possessions. And, and it really is key to not just give away possessions and, and making those types of decisions I thought were pretty questionable on Shanahan's part, settling for some field goals as well. I mean, they were dominating Dallas in the first half of this game. And to get into even just to get into halftime and only be, up 16 to seven, I think was a pretty big failure, frankly. I mean, they weren't really converting enough. And and then you get that one interception and it puts them in a position where they legitimately could have lost that game, had no business losing it, in my opinion. But Dallas just committed so many penalties. I mean, the other thing was they were being very conservative and trying to run clock and run, run, run to run out clock. And they continued to get first downs on Dallas defensive penalties. I think there was two defensive holdings on the, on the D lineman for Dallas one that got highlighted on the broadcast on Randy Gregory that was behind the play. And, and they were basically saying, there's no reason to do that at all. And he bear hugged him and, and they were saying, you know, how easy of a call it was. Uh, and then also a hands to the face. And I think if I'm not mistaken, all of them, they're all automatic first downs. I think all of them came on third downs or potentially one was on a second down where they're going to set up a third and long, but it was like they Dallas needed to get these stops and get the ball back. And they're making these horrible defensive line penalties that are, you know, there's bang, bang plays. There's, DPI and and there's holding and things where you're getting beat and you grab a guy. Some of the defensive line stuff were like, I don't know. I just, I don't get it. It seems like it's almost like intentional to be like, why are you as a D lineman bear hugging a guy? Like just let yourself get blocked or why the hands to the face was the third down for sure. 
It's like you're pass rushing on third down. You know they're going to call that. How are you getting your hands up on his face? I mean, that seems like one where it's uh, just a complete lack of discipline. It's not even a bang, bang thing. Like, just don't put your hands up there. How are you doing that? You know, pretty poor penalties on Dallas that really helped the 49ers. And I think covered up some of these conservative issues that that maybe against a better team end, end up bite, biting the, the, the 49ers. Yeah. And I think the flip side of it is that Dallas was good. They have this spread out dynamic offense that was among the lead leaders in yards per game. They have this playmaking defense. They're playing at home. And, you know, you get a little bit of a sense of the expectations for different teams when, you know, all the talk about firing Mike McCarthy and, and firing Kingsbury after these losses. I mean, you, I could understand how that would work and you could take the next step forward at the same time. I mean, are you not going to give Kingsbury credit for the big start for the development with Kyler Murray for some of the things that he is doing there for defeating the Dallas Cowboys just a couple of weeks ago, right? You, you look at McCarthy and you say, okay, he's maybe not directly responsible for the really good things that they are doing. And yet at this, and you, and you have this, this breakdown, like you mentioned with all these penalties that you shouldn't have. And yet after years and years and years of having talent and not being able to put things together, you know, you've got a guy who's had success in a previous place. He comes here. I mean, Mike McCarthy is a guy who, yeah, has some weaknesses, but is continuously successful and yet doesn't get credit for that because there are ways to trace the success to other people. And it's not that those other people shouldn't also get credit, but it's interesting within that dynamic. But it's also a thing here, a little bit like with the Bills and the Patriots, I look at this game and say, instead of looking at the Cowboys and feel like now we need to fire people because they lost this game, this is a big triumph for the 49ers, even with the things that you outlined that they did and with the mistakes that the Cowboys made. Some of these mistakes that seem completely unforced, I think do still stem from all the pressure that the 49ers put on you as a successful running team, but also one that does so many other things well. When we look at this game here and you say, Garoppolo makes the big mistake. They, they're not aggressive enough. They kick field goals. I mean, think about the chances that he would throw a terrible pick. They would not convert in the red zone and they would win on the road against a team as good as the Dallas Cowboys. So they're going to have to play better against the Packers, right? But if they clean some of those things up and convert some of those field goals and touchdowns. And we saw with the Raiders, who actually played a very good game against the Bengals, but they go on this big stretch of kicking field goals in part because, you know, I don't think that Derek Carr has the weapons he needs down there in the red zone. I mean, you kick field goals against a good team in the playoffs and you lose, right? The 49ers managed to get through a game where they did that. If they find the end zone against the Packers, there's a lot of danger there. Because, I like that, yeah. and, and even again in this game too, right, where Dallas didn't do everything poorly. They took away George Kittle, which couldn't have been what the 49ers really wanted to have happen in that game. If the 49ers can get Kittle going against the Packers, you've got yet another weapon. Now, I, mean, I think the Packers are going to take something away too. But one of the reasons why people were on the 49ers and one of the reasons why I like it as an upset again in the next round is because the 49ers have a lot of different ways they can beat you. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great secondary spin. They they did so many things wrong and yet still won. If they can clean up some of those things, which do seem pretty fixable, uh, I think that's a really 
uh, kind of sharp way of looking at that the other way than that, than what I was saying, which they played a really good football game. Absolutely. Outside of a couple of those, you know, questionable coaching decisions in terms of, you know, the fourth downs and Garoppolo's one pick, if he doesn't throw a bad interception in a game, he's, he's a good quarterback, right? It's just ultimately like, can he avoid that one or two really rough passes Dallas is done now. CeeDee Lamb's season's over. I've seen conflicting things on Twitter this week. I've seen a lot of the dynasty community pointing out that he is overvalued at wide receiver three in some rankings. And then people were sort of celebrating as he started to fall in some rankings. Uh, he does not, I don't think, belong in the top three you know, wide receivers overall. There's just so many good receivers. And there's you know, some, some legitimate concerns about CeeDee Lamb at this point. On the flip side, I saw a lot of the NFL analysts breaking down what went wrong for Dallas. And a huge part of it was that San Francisco was playing off coverage and Dallas was running these downfield. I mean, they, there was a lot of conversation about CeeDee Lamb only playing a couple of snaps in the slot. He's playing on the outside. But also when they're playing off, he's running these routes that are 10 yards before they break in some direction rather than a five-yard hitch or a quick hitter. Let him make some plays after the, after the catch. They're just running into off coverage. And I, I saw some, um, I wish I could give credit where it's due. I saw this several different places and I've kind of been in and out of paying attention as we, as we move on from the, from the season. Um, but I, I saw some comments that Dallas has done this a lot, that a lot of teams are playing them in off coverage and they're, they're just sending their outside wide receivers into the coverage where like by playing off the DB is just getting the advantage of, you know, already being deep to where the routes are going to come to if you're not doing anything underneath. Right. And even Troy Aikman, who I think has some some pretty big, some pretty interesting uh, takes when he's calling games, but he had a really interesting uh, quote this week where he basically said that you know he, he said something like it, it, it isn't great to go back to you know his day or to say you know back in my day that's not really useful, but he was saying back in my day you know Michael Irvin catches ten games by half in this situation because we're just throwing him a bunch of hitches and we're just saying we're going to throw the ball to Michael Irvin because they're not guarding him. They're playing 10 yards off of him. And I think that's valid. It aligns with a lot of other things that were being said. So there's this conflicting things. One, CeeDee Lamb didn't draw enough targets, didn't do well enough. He got his lunch eaten by Cedric Wilson, who has a 10-target game out of the slot. And Dynasty players are, are pointing out that he has not been good enough through his first two years to really justify being a top five overall wide receiver. And then the flip side of it, which is, you know, Usage and those types of things do matter. And is CeeDee Lamb being put in a position where he basically can't succeed? And there are other good players in the Dallas passing game. And so is it is it basically Dallas just saying, like, we're in in a pretty poor way sacrificing CeeDee Lamb so that we can hit underneath targets to Dalton Schultz because that's how we've set up our offense. How are you looking at that on both sides of that? I think that's exactly what's happening. And the Cowboys have reacted to an extent. I mean, one of the things is that over this stretch beginning in week 14, Lamb's target depth has cratered. And it's cratered into the range where I think it's pretty concerning that that, that element of it as well. Because we want our guys who are ranked in the top 10, certainly in the top five, and I'm somebody who has had Lamb in the top five, you want that guy to be running all different kinds of routes from different positions. You mentioned the snaps in the slot, all that type of thing. In his games where he's dominated, they've used him in a variety of different ways. 
in some of these games where he has struggled, they used him as a decoy and that won't work <laughs> if you're playing someone in fantasy, right? And I would question whether or not it works in reality because one of the things that we've seen with the Cowboys is that they have feasted on bad teams and they have seemed uncertain against good teams. All you have to do, I mean, the one that really stands out obviously is they play against this uh, Broncos defense that was fantastic and doesn't have a QB and so they don't make the playoffs and all that. But teams like the Chiefs and the Chargers and the Raiders, I mean, figuring out some ways to get through that. And there's a little bit more familiarity there. But you also had this game just a couple of weeks ago with the Arizona Cardinals where you lose. And you've got to be doing both things, I think. You have to have a team that uses your stars to open up the other guys. And the fact that they've had Dalton Schultz emerge as one of the better NFL tight ends should be a big benefit for them going forward, right? But at the same time, I mean, if you're having Cedric Wilson as the guy, I mean, Cedric Wilson has been better than what we expected from Michael Gallup, really. And if you're going to have him be the guy who has to win, if you're going to have, in some ways, even worse, I think, if you're going to have Amari Cooper as the guy who has to win, then your ceiling is lower and you go play teams like the 49ers and you go through this stretch where you struggle and then you're in deep trouble, right? I mean, and again, if you go on a hot stretch, it's going to be a little bit different. The Chiefs looked clueless for a quarter and a half and then they morph into themselves. But you've got to be a team like the Buffalo Bills, like the Kansas City Chiefs, like what I think the Packers are going to be, where you go out there and put it on the good teams, not put it on the bad teams. And Amari Cooper is not the guy who's going to get that done for you. I think the fact that Cooper has been involved recently is a very bad sign for number one, the design of the offense, and then number two for Lamb, because it just it has to resemble more what the Bengals have been doing in the second half of the season. Maybe didn't do so much in the first half. You've got to be giving the ball to your stars, and then when you come off of that, you've got to be extremely efficient to these other guys. Now, the efficiency for guys like Schultz and Wilson and Cooper has been better than what we might expect based on their talent levels. But you get into these traps where I think you're comfortable going through your non-stars and you don't get used to needing to use a guy like C.D. Lamb. You look at the last month and it was very clear that this was a trap kind of game. And one of the reasons that people were on the 49ers is because they could envision the scenario where Dallas didn't use C.D. Lamb in the playoff game. And... And that's exactly what happened. You know, you had Dallas at different points in the season trying to prove, okay, Ezekiel Elliott is still good. Uh, Amari Cooper is still good. We can win this way. We can win that way. That's not what you want, right? A dominant NFL team and a Super Bowl contender. And, and one of the reasons why the ownership is frustrated, the fans are frustrated, you get these calls for people to be fired is you have to be going through your stars. And I just, it could very well be a thing where C.D. Lamb is actually not that good, that we have overvalued him, that he is actually a little bit more of a role player and actually just fits into this Dallas offense within the context of them having a lot of good, not great players. But, you know, go right back to what Troy Aikman says. I mean, it's not just that he would have caught a lot of short passes, but Michael Irvin would not have been schemed out of this game to when they're trying to win with other people. Right? Is, I mean, yeah. he would have been part of the Cowboys winning. And that's what you have to see from C.D. Lamb going forward both for the Cowboys as a reality team and for fantasy, if Lamb is going to be what we think he can be. And that, that, was, that possibility is still there, but you've got to start to see that. Yep, absolutely. That was his, um, Aikman's point, was that sometimes he feels like the, the coordinators and, and some of these things are, are over-scheming and that 
basically when he was saying back in my day, like he was saying, what we would have done is just said, we're, we're calling a play for Michael Irvin, right? We're calling a play for our best player. Uh, I think I've mentioned this quote on here before. It's one of my favorite ones though, that people throw out. There's just this concept in, in play callers of think players, not plays when they're, you know, when they're calling the game, I've heard some, you know, football people use this terminology, like that Kellen Moore essentially should have been thinking players, not plays, not what play do I design, but how do I get the ball in CD Lamb's hand? hands? And if he was thinking that way, I think it's very clear he wasn't because he's thinking that way when we talk about this off coverage stuff and everything else, it's let's throw him a quick hitter here on first down, you know, in the third quarter, second quarter, whatever, things aren't going well. Let's just get a ball in CD Lamb's hands and let him try to make a play after the catch. And, you know, Worst case scenario, the cornerback comes up and makes a tackle. You get a five-yard gain on first down. I mean, I don't know why you're not doing that three times throughout the game. I don't know why you're not running a, you know, a 10-yard comeback where he's moving, you know, he's getting the, the cornerback backing up a little bit, even in the off coverage, and then come, he's coming back to the ball. He's going to have separation there. It's just so easy against off coverage to run that type of play. That was one of the ones that Aikman referenced was we'd be running a lot of comebacks and quick outs and things. I will say this about Lamb, and you mentioned the idea that people – thought that, you know, Dallas might make these mistakes and not utilize Lamb and things. One of the reasons I'm still optimistic is that there's elements in his profile that that point to this. I mean, when Gallup got hurt early in the year, Lamb went five, six straight games with at least a 90% route rate as a percentage of dropbacks. And then in week nine, it drops back down to 67%, 61%, 48%. In week 11, when he got a little banked up, he missed week 12. From that then on, and I don't have week 18 here, but from then on, from that week nine point on, he only gets a backup over 90% twice. And I don't know where he was at in the wild card round either or week 18. I assume, you know, obviously with Gallup getting hurt again, that it was high again. And so he had some of these games where even as he was running a ton of routes, he wasn't necessarily earning targets. But there was a stretch of seven games for him where he had, where Gallup was back in the lineup where he was back in sort of the role he was in in 2021, where he's sort of the third guy and the forgotten guy. And you have Gallup running these 90%, 100% route rates. And obviously Cooper as the other one running a ton of routes. And for whatever reason, CD Lamb is the guy that is being taken off on a third of the pass plays or a, you know, a quarter of the pass plays. It doesn't make a lot of sense. They didn't do that early in the year and he was actually performing very well. And because of that, because the routes were down, the, the stat I always like to reference targets per route run, you know, I have a weighted targets per route run that brings in air yards. Like Lamb still looks pretty solid in those, in those regards in terms of um, the, the volume he was earning on the routes he was running. Now, again, I don't have the final couple games and it didn't close well for him. He didn't have a good week 18 or a good wild card round, but he also was good on the yards per target side for this season. He was over nine yards per target. So you break up, you know, yards per out runs a pretty predictive set. You break that up into the yards per target and the targets per out run. Lamb pretty solid on both sides of that equation. Now, I still don't think that necessarily means that he should be a top three dynasty receiver. I, I see why people are saying he needs to be moving down. I also do think you can just look right there at the routes and the targets per out run and all of that and say the Cowboys weren't utilizing him well. He should have been on the field board. They drafted him as a first rounder last year. There's no reason in his second season this guy should be having any games where he's only running around on 70% of dropbacks. That just doesn't happen as somebody who writes about this stuff every week in stealing signals. Good receivers don't run routes on 70% of dropbacks. It just doesn't happen. So why is that happening to Lamb? Maybe it's an issue with him. I don't know. Uh, I, I I sort of blame the Cowboys in their offensive structure. It's It tends to be something that they, when like when Gallup was hurt, that they're willing to, to play Lamb more. But because they have Gallup and Cooper in these roles that they envision, they're 
typecasting Lamb into like a slot role. He's not like he's not Hunter Hunter Renfro. You know what I mean? And so, and then in this game, he's not even in the slot. <laughs> now now we're gonna tell him to go play Gallup's role for the full game. It's a very um, very counterintuitive, I think, uh, way of of managing things. But I just yeah, I wanted to point that out because if you do look at him on a per route basis, he doesn't look bad. He is at a 23% targets per out run, which is solid, very solid. 0.59 weighted targets per out run, very solid. And so, you know, not elite, but certainly not bad. I think you want to spend your next month, month and a half as a dynasty participant trying to increase your shares of Lamb, of T. Higgins, who, you know, if the Bengals go out without Higgins, having another big game, you're going to have this second kind of mini buying opportunity. He obviously went off for the huge game in week 16 there, but it'll kind of finish out a little bit quietly and be very overshadowed by Jamar Chase. You want to get your shares up of Brandon Ayuk, but all three of those guys, you also have to be patient. I do think that we're into the environment now where you don't want to be making these godfather type offers. You got to let it come to you a little bit. Make sure that you're covering all of your different leagues, exploring the opportunities you have with the opposing participant and, and trying to really work on price. I think that there were reasons to go ahead and just make huge offers this last off season and let it play out. One of the reasons is that even if they have disappointing seasons, as they've all had to an extent, you can still see where the value is there. And so even if you lose, you lose kind of small on that. If they had blown up in the way that was possible, you would come out ahead, even playing, paying a very hefty price. As we go into year three, you no longer want to overpay for these guys. But any league in which someone is actually losing confidence, you want to make sure you make a quality offer. Higgins is a great call. He's right there with Lamb and some of these targets per run, weighted targets per run rates. And I'll just note like some other guys that are around there that were more efficient. Jamar Chase is one. Um, I'm trying to look through here, but I, I just saw his name pop. And so, yeah, I, I don't have a, a bunch more. Mike Williams is here and, and some of these other guys. that, Yeah, they had some up and down volume at times, but uh, you can succeed with this type of volume, as Chase did because of his efficiency on the other end, the yards per target, the high touchdown rate, what he's doing after he earns the target. But on a per route basis, I mean, Lamb was earning just as much volume this year as Chase. And so that's one way of thinking of it. I, I'm not saying he should be on – the same level as chase and and chase was a rookie and and has room to grow and you also look at the other elite dynasty receivers justin jefferson was a substantial step above where lamb was in terms of targets per out run weighted targets per out run most of the elites are or, or were this year um a substantial step above i said 23 percent targets per out run most of the elites are up over 25 percent in in some approach 30 percent and so uh yeah I, I, I agree with you. I think you should be buying where it's possible, especially if there continues to be this sort of negative perception. I don't think you want to be paying a ton. I, I also agree with the, the the members of the Dynasty community have pointed out that he shouldn't be in the top three, basically. I mean, I don't think that makes a lot of sense um, at this point from what we've seen over two years where the production hasn't really backed up the profile that we're so excited about. Hey, Rotoviz fans. This is Dave Cabin from the Rotoviz Fantasy Football Podcast, taking a minute to let you know that as a loyal Rotoviz listener, you can get 10% off a one year subscription when you use the promo code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. It gives you full access to all of our content and tools. And again, 
That's RV Radio 2022 at checkout for 10% off a one year Rotovia subscription. Enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ben, before we close it today, we had a couple of interesting kind of trades and offers come through in our Dynasty Leagues, which I think relate back to some of the things that we saw in the wild card round, which are kind of interesting. There was a trade that went through of Deontay Johnson for Darren Waller and a 2023 second round pick. We had been offered uh, by that same manager the 2023 second round pick for Juju Smith-Schuster. It's interesting there because we, we had mentioned, and this was even referenced in the trade offer, that we need to get down probably by really not a ton of players, but maybe down by a player as we look here. We also have a ton of 2022 picks. We wouldn't mind moving some of those into 2023. Now you hear 2023 second round pick and you're thinking, you know, we both have a time delay and a pick that's not a first rounder, even with how much value that Juju has lost, is that kind of in the range? At the same time, when you're talking about Superflex, and you could see it this past year, it may not be nearly as much the case with this current draft class, since the quarterbacks are expected to be very weak. At the same time, they're expected to be very weak, yet you go through the draft process, and whoever emerges from that process is going to go up boards, right? I mean, not every season. I mean, you have your seasons where there's a Trevor Lawrence who very clearly is number one from very early. That doesn't even always pan out. I mean, Lawrence's career is very much up in the air at this point. But then you have a bunch of guys who are projected sort of 15, 20, early second round. And they, by the time that you go through the process and whichever players have looked okay, and then you have the teams that are so desperate, which is going to be very much the case again this season. I mean, there are a bunch of teams that despite the weak free agent market, the weak trade market, and the weak draft market, they're going to have to address the position in some way, shape, or form. Those guys rise up. Maybe they don't go one, two, three, but maybe they go one, five, ten. You know, you have some of those guys even pan out, like a Josh Allen. And, and Josh Allen, not someone who was some crazy riser through the process, but someone who definitely had marks both for and against him, a controversial player, even through several years in the NFL, where he wasn't particularly accurate. We know these guys are going to have their values inflated because of need. And that means that when you're in a super flex draft, you're going to have those guys go with picks that are valuable. And it almost works both ways, right? If they move up and they move up into that, even the six, seven, eight type of range in the first round, then whoever would have been there in a normal draft moves into 
the kind of first, second round, not really a turn in a rookie draft, but that area. On the other hand, if they fall all the way into the second round because there are some huge questions about them, then you suddenly can take a quarterback in a super flex draft with a second round rookie pick. So thinking about the ways that super flex, maybe round two picks are more valuable than we think of off the top of our heads. And we think about the fact that the 2023 class, at least right now, there's a lot of enthusiasm for where are you with some of these trades and how do you think they balance out? Obviously we saw Deontay Johnson, a couple more of those big drops in the wild card game. We know his quarterback play may be even worse next season. And yet he's a guy who draws targets at a crazy rate and is at an age level where he could very easily be still viable from a trade market perspective in two or three years. That's kind of the kind of the minimum, I think, of players you want to go out and pay for. You have Darren Waller on the opposite side of that trade who could come back and really be a key piece of winning a 2022 title. And then you have a little bit of optionality with the 2023 second round pick. Juju, he comes back and plays. I thought that was cool. It was cool, but obviously he wasn't going to make an impact. Any thoughts on him after seeing him in this just you know, very impotent game that the, the Steelers put together? Yeah, I mean, it was fun to, to see him play um, sort of in the same role. A lot of underneath targets. He had eight targets, five catches, 26 yards. I mean, <laughs> we've seen a lot of that in, in his final couple of years here in Pittsburgh where he, he sees decent volume, but, you know, winds up with 20, 26 yards on five catches. Like he's a running back or a, <laughs> like a, a not particularly athletic tight end line. Um, you know, <laughs> even it's almost embarrassing to – uh, the tight ends to say that's a tight end line because most of them are able to do a little bit more per catch than that. I mean, you watch Juju and and, and Chase Claypool in this game, and you're really thinking to yourself, where is James Washington? <laughs> he cannot be worse than these guys. Right. Yeah, I I think Juju has the potential for a career resurgence. We've talked a lot about it. Um, it's also tough when you look at we're now years removed from what might have been just a really early and short peak. You know, I, I think back to the Hakeem Nicks things and, and some of those types of players that still don't make sense to me. Hakeem Nicks not going on to have a better career doesn't make any sense to me still to this day. He had a very good first couple of years. He looked fantastic. And then just, was, you know, he had a, a foot injury or something, right? But still just like, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know what the long-term upside is for Juju. I, I did see that trade offer and I was you know, going to chat with you about it. I, I didn't think that was all that bad because we have so much 2022 draft capital to, you know, to get a second round pick in 2023 and to cut down a player and, and move off of Juju. I think I would have been comfortable with that. We're going to try to probably be moving stuff into 2023 anyway. So I thought that was reasonable. Maybe not necessarily the the correct value because of the time discount and, and time delay and all of that, but certainly a reasonable trade that we could have accepted and justified from, from our position. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do still have some optimism for Juju. I don't want to just give him away or anything. Right. And so it's one of those things where I, I was just saying sort of all the, the negative, the, the, the down potential for Juju that he is sort of this Hakeem next. I mean, if a team like the chiefs makes a play on him again, this year in free agency, he's got to make that jump. Right. I mean, he can't stay there with the Steelers and the quarterback situation they're likely to have. It's still so hard to understand why he went back. I mean, I, I was telling myself that there were some types of promises or 
or decisions made that his role wouldn't be the same as last year, but it very clearly was. And he didn't play a lot this year, but you get him in a better situation, right? He showed that explosiveness. The, 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 the up case is that he just literally just turned 25 in November. He's going to be 25 at the start of next season. You have the potential for a second peak. And I know that seems unlikely at this moment, but certainly has a lot of years in front of him. If he does sign with a new team, a team that is, you know, this role basically can't get worse. I don't, I don't think a new team is going to be likely to use him at such a low a dot in such a similar way, like almost any other team, any other spot you can imagine him being in, you know, he was talking with the Ravens. If he would have signed at the Ravens, they're a little bit more of a vertical passing team. We would have likely seen him have an a dot in the double digits. Probably I would guess in that offense doesn't mean he would have been great, but it would just be interesting to see him getting into more space downfield and some of his routes and things. I mean, the reality is he's just not running a lot of deep routes and he has years ahead of him. I don't have a great example. So the one I'm going to pull is Larry Fitzgerald, which isn't a good, good one necessarily, but he had a, a, a span from age 29 to age 31, where it looked like he was pretty much done because he had three straight seasons under a thousand yards his yards per reception, yards per uh, target were dropping. He was playing with some bad quarterbacks. You know, the targets were still there. They had kind of fallen off by his age 31 year in 2014. And then things, he, 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 you know, things improved and he had a resurgence from 2015 to 2017, age 32 to 34. Uh, just an example of a guy who had basically two peaks. He had this elite first seven or eight years and then has a three-year lull where it really looks like he's done. And then for him, it was a lot later in terms of his age curve. He's 32, 33, 34. The reason I say it's not a great example is I don't think we should use this as um, evidence of anything else, but I just gave sort of the, the negative Hakeem Nix. I wanted to at least give one example of a guy who consensus was pretty heavy that he was done, but he had shown obviously in his past that he had the ability to play at a really high level, and he continued to. And He had three straight 100 catch seasons, three straight 1,000-yard seasons after not having one for, for three years in a row. And so – yeah, is it that crazy that Juju could have sort of a second wind, age 25, age 26, age 27, age 28? I mean, no. I mean, he's got four more years, solid years, I would say, before we're even talking about him being on the back end of the age curve. So if he comes out this year in a new offense and is in a different role and has just even a solid season, I mean, we're talking positively about Deontay Johnson in a similar light. Deontay Johnson is older than Juju, has been in the league less for a less, less number of seasons, right? He came in after Juju, I think two years after Juju, but Juju was such a young rookie at 21 and Deontay came in at like 23 that Deontay is actually six months older. Just where they're at on the age curve is a point I'm trying to make. Um, certainly, I'd rather have Deontay right now. He's been more productive in recent seasons and that's what we should be looking at the most when projecting ahead. But Juju, I think, has time where if he rebounds, his value can also rebound. Is, is the main argument I'm trying to make. And so not a guy that I would want to just be cutting and giving up on. Sure. And I think that with, with some of the age curve stuff, I mean, a lot of that is you put a lot of the players together. When you look at the individual people, it tends to be these pretty steep declines and the declines in many cases are related to injury, which Juju obviously has had. You have guys like Hakeem Nix, Kenny Britt, the other one who always pops for me, both of those guys, if they had stayed clean, stayed healthy, uh, I think we would just look at them in a very, very different light, much closer to someone like a Calvin Johnson than what their careers turned out to be, which was nowhere close, right? So you get injured early, you don't necessarily ever come back. One of the things that you mentioned there that's so important though, is because of his age, if you hit on what's probably a low probability and he does come back, 
then suddenly the sky is the limit from a trade perspective because he's still going to be so young. And the other thing is when you're talking about people who get hurt and aren't 100% of what they used to be, you really need someone who is just an unbelievable star to be able to take you know, five, 10% off and say, okay, this guy is even still a viable NFL player, much less a fantasy impact player. But he's been so bad for the last couple of years that it's easy to forget that Juju's first two seasons in the NFL were two of the best ever. And so that's another way in which if he were to rehab some of the value, then the trade market is going to really shift in a big way because of some of these points about him. And that kind of goes back to this idea of, of why do you, of how do you decide to trade certain people? And I think that a lot of times the tendency or the temptation is to trade the guys with a wide range of outcomes because you can't count on them. But the smart thing to do, at least some of the time, is to sell your best players or to sell the players where it's really clear what they're going to give. You get a fair market price for them. And then you keep some of these guys with the wider range because, I mean, you don't want to, there's, there's not a lot gained by selling low on them now or not seeing what that is. And especially if you put your roster together in a way where you do have 10 to 12 really strong players, and then you have eight to 10 or whatever your roster limits are, but you have these guys to where you've got a decent number of wide range of outcomes options. Now, the thing that you and I are dealing with a little bit in this league is because we traded back so many times, we're, and then we took players with a wide range of outcomes, or they've descended into that when you think of a guy like Will Fuller. We may have more players in that category right now than we would really prefer, but it is something that we have to look at as we make trades. You know, is it something where you would actually prefer to trade a Depot Samuel, even though he's the clear star on the team? And I think, it, it, yeah, potentially, yes, uh, trade Depot. I, I, I think the biggest thing from what you just said that made me realize is I think we do want to hold Juju. That I, I mentioned I like the 2023 two. I think part of that is because I don't think we'll get a 2022 two, and we already have several. So probably the best offer we could expect for a current year pick would be like a 2022 third round pick. We don't we have like almost no value for that because we are loaded up so much with picks. I mean, that's not to say that it wouldn't be valuable, but part of why I liked that 2023 two is just you know we're moving picks into the future. Having said that, I think. In other leagues, if you can make, you know, to our listeners, if you could make a deal where you're trading a 2023-2 for Juju right now, that's, I mean, he's probably a pretty strong buy because I think the other really good point you just made is that he had the great first and second season. He has the production to back it up where if we do see some positive stuff, the, the and his age is young enough as well, that we are going to see sentiment shift, not to where he's a top five you know, dynasty receiver again, I think at, at one point maybe he was, but we will see him rise again in a way that by the time 2023 comes around, he will be worth more than a two probably, or at least you'd be able to get that back and have the production in the interim. Now, certainly there's downside as well, but uh, I think it's a bet worth making, especially I would, I would also point out, you look at not just those first two seasons, he's played five years. His third was the injury, the first down year his injury plagued year with his knee and ben got hurt they played the whole year without roethlisberger uh only played 12 games and then this past year was also obviously an injury plagued year the middle year 2020 he played 16 games was not great but had a 97 catch season with nine touchdowns and so again the, the big reason he wasn't great was 
was the yards per catch. It was the roll. Uh, he only had 831 yards. But if he comes back next year, is in a new situation where he shows some of the yards per reception upside again. I mean, really, like you look at it, 15.8, 12.8, 13.1 in his first three seasons, and then 8.6 these last two. So four plus yards per reception he's dropped off these last two years because of that sort of roll shift. He goes somewhere else. He starts averaging over 10 yards per reception again and is able to earn targets and actually put up a decent season. People are going to look back actually somewhat favorably, I think, in 2020 and point out the elements. I mean, I think I would point out the elements where, you know, there were still targets there. There were still receptions. He was able to actually score. The fact that we've seen him be uh, a guy who can find the end zone. He's certainly not someone that we'd sit there and go, yeah, he's going to need to be a low target rate or, or uh, excuse me, touchdown rate type of projection if he's at least seeing some air yards because he has some yak ability, he has some of that stuff. So we get some other stuff in his profile. We get him getting some catches down the field again. Obviously, we'll be able to look back to the first two seasons and say, well, this is, you know, maybe a second win where we can see some production like this. But you can also even look at that one other healthy year he's had in the last three and say there were some positive elements there too. I think I think he'd be viewed very favorably, let's say, if he landed somewhere else and had a thousand yard season this this coming season. And so uh I don't know. What do you think? Do you think if you're in a league where you're looking for guys who could gain value that you would give up a 2022-2023 second round pick to acquire Juju? I I I might not, but it, it's because of the structure of those rosters. I think it's a good and, and the way that I like to play it. I think that's a good move. I, obviously, I don't think you'll get it unless you're in a league where the quarterbacks are very important and make that second round pick more valuable. But, you know, those things you said and the touchdowns that you mentioned, we know the touchdowns are going to be all over the place. But I would think that his best fit and some of the teams that were after him last year are these playoff contenders with good quarterbacks who need a possession receiver, who need a second or third touchdown threat. If you have him, you almost have to hold him until you at least see where he's going to go, or, or if you get a great offer. But you, because if he's back in an environment, well, you mentioned the yards per reception. I think that's a great point. I guess my skepticism about his ability to separate or create the type of, you know, run the type of routes, create the type of plays that will allow him to really juice that again. I may be more worried about that than his ability to be an underneath guy, but also an underneath guy with the size and physicality who can be a threat in the red zone. And know that if you play with a Patrick Mahomes or an Aaron Rodgers or some of these kind of guys, including some of the rising younger QBs, I mean, you could be in a situation there where you score a bunch of points. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, those Chargers players were so interesting this season was they just didn't have the depth that you would expect from or that you would need to have for the top guys not to be so valuable with a Justin Herbert. So, yeah, I mean, you could get into a situation where you're playing in a Denver Broncos type of environment where, you know, you'd almost be a straight release kind of player. Fortunately, you're not going to be exactly the Denver Broncos because they've made their their big bet with Tim Patrick. <laughs> but, you know, it's going to be very context dependent with a guy like Juju. But for the reasons that you mentioned, I think that you have to hold and look and see where it could be i think that we're at a place where the floor is not going to get a lot lower but the ceiling could really jump in the offseason here then I, we do have to let the people go but give us a, a quick note here on this other trade 
We talk about perpetual reloading, but I think tight end is an interesting position because it's so hard to fill with a star. Even within a perpetual reloading situation, would you grab a Darren Waller because it's such a championship hammer type of move getting those points in your lineup? I mean, I think it, yeah, very context dependent probably, right? I think there's some concerns because he's already up there in age. I'm actually more concerned about your take on this. So why don't you close this out by saying whether or not you would make that move? Well, uh, like you said, it's going to be context. It's going to be price. I don't think that you can overpay. You don't want to give up a key asset in order to get any player, right? And we, you know, one of the things that I was kind of felt like was you've got to hold a Calvin Johnson all the way to zero. You've got to hold a Rob Gronkowski all the way to zero. Once you do that, then you're like, well, we obviously should have traded because now they're at zero. And even with those guys, you want to be on the right side of it in terms of making sure you get value in a trade. But one of the things that you and I have done with this road of this Triflex Dynasty League that we're in, that we try and do in some of our other leagues, the reason that you create a lot of pathways to victory is that some of those pathways are represented by future picks. And at a certain point, as we've mentioned, you get into this position where you can't roster everyone who is interesting already. And that's kind of the, the good news, bad news situation is that, yeah, now you're going to actually start losing a little bit of value just because your roster has gotten so interesting and so fun and so deep that you know, you're cutting people who are interesting. But at the same time, you can use some of that value to bring in a guy like a Darren Waller. You can use some of those future picks. You can use some of the guys on the end of your roster that you didn't want to give up but you also couldn't really play because you were just so deep in the starting lineup. I think if you have maneuvered your roster into that kind of a scenario and you need tight end firepower, then I love making that move because even with Waller having a very disappointing season, it's not hard to see him coming back and having a five point edge on the guys at tight end six through 12, you know, guys who are going to be in starting lineups, even for good teams, right? Because some good teams you play against are going to be built in such a way that they have actively not taken the risk or not put in the, you know, paid the price at that tight end position and they're very deep elsewhere. You can get an advantage on them at that spot. So I think that's a little bit of an interesting move that you can make with some of those older tight ends who are really gapping half of the starters in your league. Well, Ben, we are excited about the next round of the playoffs here. We'll have some more playoff-ish content for you in the second show look a little bit perhaps at the FFPC playoff two contest, just uh, some quick things with that. But this is the fun time of the season, especially if you grew up in one of the eight cities that are still alive. If you were raised in an environment where maybe that's not the city you grew up in, but that was your home team. Obviously, Colum is an Irishman, but he's, he's very much invested in the Packers. Many of us have similar types of stories where you have a team in this final eight that makes this the most exciting weekend of the year until your team gets in the Super Bowl, obviously. That's pretty uh, big leverage at that point. But Ben, this was a lot of fun. Uh, We appreciate all the listeners. If you want to drop us a rating and review, uh, we always enjoy those. Subscribe to the feed. Had a little bit of a different schedule this week. Over the next couple of months, we'll have different tempo to when the show's released. You'll get them if you subscribe to the feed as soon as they do come out. Uh, I'm Sean Siegel with me as always. It's Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretchen. Make sure you subscribe to Ceiling Signals. Ben has some cool off-season plans for you there. If you want to subscribe to Rotoviz, we've changed the coupon code. We're now in 2022, so the coupon code is RV Radio 2022 at checkout. We'll talk to you guys soon.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.